Welcome to episode three of Pete Talks to the People, where I interview people in two different parts with some time in between. This one's particularly interesting because I interviewed lawyer Taylor Murdoch over a month ago before the election of Joe Biden and before the confirmation of Justice Barrett. Though the conversation does not talk too much about the election, it is an interesting snapshot in time from the before and after November 3rd. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to episode three of Pete Talks to People. Um, today, we are joined by Taylor Murdoch. Taylor is an attorney in Lake Oswego. He practices family law and enjoys spending time with his spouse and children, all of whom are more intelligent than him, which makes you a perfect guest for this show because I want to make sure that people are just as smart or less smart than you. Perfect. How are you doing today, Taylor? I'm just fine, Pete. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. I wanted to bring you on because I feel like the law is talked about constantly in our society. It's, um, obviously, we're taping this when we have a Supreme Court uh, nomination about to go through. It will probably be confirmed. Um, everybody, we talk about the Constitution constantly. You have constitutionalists who believe in a certain reading of the Constitution. You have Democrats and Republicans seeing this document as um, reading it very differently depending on what your politics are. And I wanted to get, kind of get down to basic questions with a lawyer. And I picked you because I know you. And I thought it would be a fun time. And I know, but I know your past. Um, your bio, I think, tells yourself a little short. You worked um, on pro bono uh, death penalty cases in Louisiana, is that correct? Yeah, um, not pro bono. So I um, went down to New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina and volunteered as a Jesuit volunteer with the law office that represents indigent clients uh, faced with capital charges all throughout Louisiana and the Deep South. Um, so uh, we were an office that was created because in Louisiana, essentially, every time somebody was charged with a death penalty crime, they were oftentimes farmed out to uh, a civil attorney, for example, who had no experience in criminal law. So my office really focused on providing um, clients who were facing capital charges with experienced attorneys. And I, I was uh, basically a glorified office boy, but I got to have a really you know, life-changing experience um, working with men who were facing capital charges all throughout Louisiana. What were the legal issues? Because um, it, it it's not just guilt and innocence at that point. Sometimes that's been pretty much adjudicated. What are the legal issues when you're dealing with a death penalty case? Well, you know, I wasn't a lawyer at the time or even a law student. Um, I just recently graduated from Portland State and I went down there, you know, to do a year of service. So um, uh, what I can tell you is that my job was mostly about trying to get my clients ice cream during my visits in the parish jail um, or um, bringing them Sudoku so they could fill out. So I, I wasn't doing any legal work when I much legal work when I was down there. Really, um, the legal issues, though, I think are fascinating that they've dealt with. Um, you know, I've been able to stay in touch with a number of my clients. I was able to visit on one of the guys um, just last year. And um, his case is fascinating. I won't use his name, but um, he was charged with murder in um, Lake Charles, Louisiana. And he's now had his third trial um, about his criminal issues. That is, I believe he was the initial trial was back in the early 90s. Uh, one thing that happened, for example, and you'll appreciate this um, with your background, uh, the judge got up and walked out of the trial in the middle of it for 45 minutes. It didn't tell anyone where he was or what he was doing. Um, so that was one of the bases for appeal. 
Um, it was just remarkable, you know, that some, uh, here you have a man who's, the state is trying to kill, and the judge can't even be bothered to sit through the entire thing. Um, it, so th those are some of the, the things that pop up in, in um, really unusual um, settings like that. So you have this background, and then you go to law school, you become a lawyer, you study all these issues. Is the death penalty constitutional? Well, I'm not a constitutional scholar. I'm just a humble divorce lawyer. Um, but yeah, I, I think there's a, there's a good argument to be made that it is constitutional. Uh, one of the things I think we may talk about is that um, you know the Constitution has specifics, and you can't just because you agree with a certain point of view uh, doesn't necessarily mean that you know the the thing that you think should be outlawed is unconstitutional. Um, so there's there's different framings of it. One thing, an example, is the uh, Eighth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, um, which prohibits cruel and unusual punishment. What makes a constitutional scholar? Because I mean, I, I assume that you know the Constitution, you've read it. Um, knowing you a little bit, I know you are passionate about politics, passionate about policy. This is not something that, why aren't you a constitutional scholar? Why, why aren't you considered one? Well, I, I think this division into specialities is really, is really problematic for a democracy, right? I, I don't think we should all have experts in each of the, each field when it comes to democracy, I think we should all be informed about it. Which is one thing, one reason why I think it's great that you're doing this. You know, the the idea that that the Constitution would require a specialist, you know, to interpret it was very foreign to the founders when they when they came up with it. The idea was is that we're all participating in this, and you know, the the congressman who's elected with you know three mistresses and um, a, you know half finished. Um, degree from, you know, the lowest state university possible, you know, his constitutional view is just as valid as, you know, this Supreme Court um, justice appointed. Uh, I think that that was more the democracy, the democratic view of the Constitution at the time that it was adopted. Um, so I think what makes it, it's a long answer to a short question, what makes a constitutional scholar? I, I, I think it's being an American. I mean, you have a duty to know about these things uh, and to inform yourself and, and everybody's opinion matters and that's why we vote. I think that's what, one of the things that frustrates me about these debates is, is exactly that. We rely on constitutional scholars that you could find one on the right and one on the left that say completely contrary things. Um, so what makes one know more than the rest? I mean, I, I'm, I wanna take what is originalism right now um, for those of you who may not be aware of the um, concept there's a conservative legal thought around originalism. Can you explain that a little bit, please, Taylor? I'll try. I'll, um, you know, I always make this joke is whenever we're talking about originalism, we should all put our tri-corner hats on, you know, and, and that, that's the way you, you gotta, you have to think because you have to think exactly like, you know, a man in uh, the late 18th century thought um, who held property, likely owned slaves, and um, um, had a whole host of other views we would find particularly problematic. Uh, but th that's that's the concept. Is uh, original originalism by and large, as I understand it, and again, um, you know, this is my personal understanding, is the idea that the Constitution was drafted in a moment in time, and the uh, original meaning, the or original text, uh, as um, understood by the um, folks who adopted it, should control. So, 
this means it gets updated. Does that mean, you know, obviously in the original text, we have the two thirds, uh, excuse me, three fifths compromise where uh, enslaved persons were counted as three fifths of the person in order to count them for representation purposes, but obviously had no actual rights, no civic rights, no human rights. Then you have the 13th, 14th, and 15th amendments come up. So are we supposed to, in, in an originalist, do they read the 13th, 14th, and 15th amendments in the, like the way that 1860s person would write it, or they read it like the 1770s person would write it, or they read it like how we read it today? You know, I think you're getting to the heart of the matter here, and that makes originalism is very difficult to understand because the Constitution is um, always, or it's regularly evolving. You know, I, I like to think of the uh, 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments as really a second founding uh, of the United States. I mean, that, that's that's the only way to look at it because it, it was such a radical departure from, like what you were saying, um, you know, the previous iterations of uh, constitutional law where we, you know, said slaves counted for three-fifths of the person for um, apportionment purposes, uh, but they couldn't vote or have any rights. I mean, it, it was it was absurd. Uh, at least that, that, I mean, it's clearly absurd now. It's absurd to us looking back in time, but you know, that, that's the way the Constitution was adopted at the time. When, when you're looking at the, the, the Constitution, it's evolved over time. And so I think it's like for the 13th, 14th, and I'll focus on the 14th Amendment, actually. Um, for a long time, the 14th Amendment was really just interpreted about property rights. Because there was life, liberty, or property, I think, is the, is the text. Could you remind kind of the basic idea of the 14th Amendment for those listening? Well, it's, it, it's, a long, it's a longer, there's a lot of different sections, but there's um, substantive due process. I feel like I'm uh, failing my constitutional law professor right now. I'm not <laughs> having this one on hand. Um, but I think we'll come back to that. <laughs> and, uh, it basically I, I, granted citizenship to people who were naturalized. Yes, and, and, and there's all sorts of, of the 14th Amendment, there, there's a lot of text, but, but, but all of the interesting parts of it, um, about um, citizenship, about um, right to, um, to life, those sort of things were passed over and, and because the courts wanted to focus on property rights, because the Supreme Court has historically been a very conservative institution throughout this country's uh, existence. And what does a conservative institution exist to do but to protect uh, you know, the, the vested interests of the ruling class? Right, and for those um, who are listening who may not have taken my eighth grade US history class, the 13th Amendment is the one that abolished slavery. The 15th Amendment is the right of citizens of the United States shall not be denied or abridged by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. But as the 14th Amendment really created um, natural born citizenship, right? It's, for, it's the one that for people who were enslaved, when they were freed, uh, people wondered if they were actually US citizens or not. 14th Amendment ensured their citizenship and their rights under their citizenship. Now, many laws were created to make sure that those you know, freed slaves did not get full citizenship rights, but the 14th Amendment, by the letter of the law, gave them full citizenship rights. Right. And, and there's four sections to the 14th Amendment. Um, that's one part of it. Um, one, one of the things I think is fascinating uh, is that you may not, you may, your listeners may or may not know this, but you know, there's a whole undercurrent in um, U.S. politics. But there's like a, a significant subset of 
people who believe that the 14th, then 14th Amendment was never validly adopted and so accordingly shouldn't control. And, and these folks have existed basically from the, the time of the drafting and the time of adopting of the 14th Amendment all the way to the present. I mean, you, you find this in um, President Trump in his um, opposition to children who are born here with foreign parents. You know, some people think that the 14th Amendment doesn't even apply to them when clearly, you know, when you use the clear language of the text, it does. It says, you know, the all persons, let's see, born or naturalized in the United States are subject to the, and subject to the jurisdiction thereof, are citizens. Uh, it doesn't get much clearer than that. And the reason I'm talking a lot about originalism and the reason that we're talking about a lot of this is that obviously the Justice Barrett, who Judge Barrett, who is up to be Justice Barrett, uh, talked about herself as an originalist. And it's, so it really made me interested on what was an originalist and the plain reading of some of the texts that most of us who you know can read have a different opinion of these things, but some of them seem pretty straightforward. Um, for example, how would you define the word militia? Um, well, I mean, a militia is, for one, it, sometimes it's easier to define things about what they are. Uh, and so what I would say is that a militia is not the guys who tried, um, or at least um, apparently um, plotted to kidnap the uh, governor of Michigan recently. Those men would be terrorists. That's not a militia. Um, a, a militia is a state-sanctioned um, group of individuals who provide uh, protection. So a militia, the easy answer is the National Guard. Right. I am always interested in um, the Second Amendment where it says a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. I always thought liberals only read the second or read the first half and conservatives only read the second half. But when you read them together, how do you interpret that? I think I, I thought it's actually been pretty simple since I read it at the time. Basically, you need to be eligible to serve in the National Guard in your state in order to have access to firearms. And as long as you're not eligible to serve in, in your uh, state militia, you don't get rights to own or bear firearms. Uh, that's my personal view. Uh, but I, I think you know, the I, there are lots of resources for your uh, listeners to on this if they want to read. And one of the one of the big cases, if you're interested in um, the application of originalism to the um, Second Amendment, um, is the case of D.C. v. Heller. Uh, it's a 2008 case where Justice Scalia found a personal right to own and bear firearms, which was nowhere previously understood in U.S. constitutional law. Um, I, I think that just, and I know I'm getting away from your question here, but if you're interested in originalism. Um, and where it can lead, uh, Heller is, a, is an amazing case because it, basically what Justice Scalia did was rather than engaging with the text of, of the um, Second Amendment as we can read it, he went back and tried to do history and tried to find a, a, a personal right uh, to firearms in the Second Amendment where none had previously been understood. And a lot of historical scholars of the Second Amendment have pointed out that his history was terrible that it wasn't actually correct, um, and that there, there was never understood to be a personal right uh, to own firearms. Um, it, it, now, of course, historians can agree, but you know, there's a line about originalism that I really like. It says, originalism turns judges into second-rate historians, and that's not the role of the law. The role of the law is to interpret it as written. Heller's a great example here 
because Justice Scalia may have found that and he may have kind of been the lead on it, but one justice can't decide a case. So he had to convince, what, do you remember what Heller was? Was it 5-4? I think it was 5-4. He had to convince four other justices that owning a weapon was a personal right. How, how do you think he did that? Why do you, when do you think, how could they get five very smart people? I, you know, these are the Supreme Court justices. They are the titans of the legal field. They, they should know the law. Why do you think they, they ruled that way? You know, it's a good question. I, I think that the justices, especially the Supreme Court, have engaged in a couple of, from my perspective personally, you know, spurious interpretations of law in a number of ways. And the way I would analogize it to is uh, simply to politics. You know, that there's, a, there's, um, there's this idea that somehow the Supreme Court exists uh, with the cliche where people, you know, they just call balls and strikes. And nothing could be further from the truth. Um, by and large, it's a, very, it's a very political enterprise in being a Supreme Court justice. That's why some of the best Supreme Court justices, in my view, have been politicians. Uh, Sandra Day O'Connor, for example, you know, she was always able uh, to round up um, votes for her view on things, uh, even when the justices personally disagreed. Um, so I, I think, I, I don't know, I'm not a scholar of um, the Heller case or, or Second Amendment case law, um, but, you know, there, there's, there's certainly an amount of uh, persuasion and, and vote trading that happens on these cases sometimes. The point of having a lifetime appointment was to take politics out of the court. And obviously people come in with their own personal views and their own personal biases that politics plays into it. But why do you think politics is so prominent if, you know, they can't be fired? Well, because I think this division between politics and everything else is, is just plain wrong. I mean, what we, what we do as a society is politics, how we organize ourselves is politics. And, you know, they, they want to be, they're appointed to make a difference. And they're appointed in order to um, carry, they're appointed by a political actor, you know, by the president, and they're confirmed by a political body, the Senate. You know, they, they want to be able to interpret, to find the outcome, uh, generally speaking, that is most suitable to them. You know, I there's this co condemnation case um, from the 1980s, and I don't remember it specifically, but you know, I had this law professor who I, I didn't find particularly enlightening, but he, he was, convinced that we all should learn about this case. It's where there's a little old lady and she lives in her house and um, Justice Scalia is the one who finds for the little old, old lady and it's the mean liberals on the court who wanted to push her out. And he tried to use it as an example that, well, you know, politics doesn't determine the outcome, you know, of, of cases on, uh, at the Supreme Court. And I, I don't find that convincing, <laughs> you know, that these, that, there, it just doesn't, there's generally speaking a, a political outcome that the parties, or that the, or the court wants to reach, um, and it tries to do so oftentimes uh, within its institutional credibility. At least that's been my experience. Of, but I, I don't think you see that more clearly than in Bush versus Gore, which makes me think, you know, I'd love to hear your opinions on Bush versus Gore's legal precedent and your ideas about why precedent seems to be key. So for anybody who's listening, um, which is probably your relatives and mine, um, the case of Bush v. Gore was a case in uh, 2000 uh, where the Supreme Court um, stopped the recount of uh, Florida 
contrary to the Florida Supreme Court and uh, essentially awarded the presidency to George W. Bush. Um, you know, I, I believe it's been cited once since, um, but for a long time it was basically understood um, that it was not controlling uh, case law and it was stated as such in the opinion. It was a 5-4 decision. Uh, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor actually stayed on uh, the court uh, for another election, even though her husband was infirm and she desperately wanted to be off the bench uh, because she didn't want it to look as if um, she decided uh, in, in George W. Bush's favor in Bush v. Gore only so that he could replace her uh, with another Republican. Uh, so that's one reason why she stayed on the bench in, until 2005. You know, in answer to you, the second part of your question, the principle of precedent really comes from the idea of stare decisis, which I'm mispronouncing because I didn't get a real education where I learned Latin. Um, but the idea with stare decisis is that uh, the thing um, that has been decided shouldn't be moved. So the idea is, is that the court reaches an, a, a ruling on one particular topic, and then it, it should only be changed if there's a good reason to disturb it. Um, so uh, precedent was an important concept in the English common law where we got most of our uh, legal traditions from. You'll find justices on the Supreme Court now who no longer believe in stare decisis and who no longer believe precedent should control. Justice Clarence Thomas has been very clear on that. Um, and he's a brilliant, brilliant man. And he has some, from my perspective, very um, concerning ideas about where this would lead because essentially it would leave the court never to have to consider its prior opinion um, in deciding the legal issue, but simply what the makeup of the court is determines the outcome in any given case before it. Uh, there's an abortion case uh, that recently came before the court this last term, which is particularly on point. Basically, uh, if I remember correctly, Louisiana copied Texas's abortion uh, laws. Uh, those abortion laws in Texas have been stuck, struck down the previous term. Louisiana just tried to come in and copy it uh, almost verbatim. And Justice Roberts did something very interesting. He said, I'm not going um, to grant this. I'm, not, I'm going to strike these down because they're almost exactly what was struck down uh, in the Texas case. Um, but he said, if you had made some other minor revisions, I would have been happy to consider um, um, supporting your abortion restrictions. Um, so, you know, Justice, Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts is an institutionalist, and he's trying to keep the court in a place where it's reviewing the thing before it and not going too far afield. I find it interesting kind of the connection between originalism and stare decisis because it kind of just moves the goalposts for originalism. It says whenever this precedent was set, we are now keeping that. And I'm wondering if that precedent was set in 1850 or in 1910 or in 1930 or in 1965 or in 1985, that changes how we read it today. So what, what do you think and I know you're not a constitutional scholar, it's very well established. What do, you, <laughs> what do you think would be the, the threshold to overcome precedent? Well, there has to be a good reason uh, for disturbing the precedent. And I, I, I actually, I disagree with you. I, I think uh, you know, precedent is a really valuable thing for democracy because it provides certain, certainty. It, it provides a, a baseline uh, from which people can organize their lives. Um, one of the things that you're seeing right now with the current court is really a wholesale attack on precedent where it suits their purposes. And I, I think that's dangerous. One example I will give 
is union rights. Um, so in the United States, um, we had a, a case that came before the court, I believe it was in the late 70s, and I'm blanking on the case, but um, the, the basic principle for unions was, if you wanna join a union, uh, that's great, but sometimes you don't wanna join the union. And there's people who, for example, work um, as teachers like yourself and are, are part of the teacher union, whether they like it or not. This is Janice, right? Yeah, well, Janice is the, is the recent case. So the idea was is that the even if you even if you hate unions, if you're a teacher union member, you still like being able not to have to work on Saturdays. You still like having the benefits that your union negotiates for you. So um, in that event, you can pay what's called a fair share. So you pay your your portion of the union dues that goes specifically to negotiating the contract for your benefit. You don't have to pay for the political costs uh, that come with. That, that, that come with like the union. Maybe you don't like what the union does politically and you don't have to contribute to that. So, uh, you know, from my perspective, uh, that was a pretty fair compromise. It was pretty consistent with the law. Uh, the Janus case, as you mentioned, um, came about in, in, I think it was in 2018 and completely dis destroyed that uh, for no good reason, really. There was a guy in Chicago, Mr. Janus, who didn't like being part of his union and didn't want to be part of it at all. And so the court ruled that for public sector unions, they no longer had to pay the union anything for negotiating on their behalf, uh, which is particularly problematic if you have, if, from the basic concept of a union, because then people can just basically free ride all they want uh, without ever having uh, to contribute. It was really just designed to cripple public employee unions. Uh, and it should be, that's the way I think it should be seen. I think my issue with precedent isn't that I don't find it valuable. It's that now Janice is precedent. Now Citizens United is precedent. If it's the last case, is that now considered precedent? So, you know, in 50 years when maybe there's a left of center court, uh, does that mean that any laws that they overchange are now life, you know, big precedent overturning controversial things to overturn a Citizens United or overturn a Janice? I, I think what, one of the biggest problems here is that there's not there's no deference to the elected officials who call the shots on this. One of the things that, uh, like when I was in law school, I did a coursework on, um, I did a research seminar with a visiting professor on um, conservative judicial activism. And um, what the person who I really focused on was uh, a justice from uh, the mid 20th century by the name of Justice Felix Frankfurter. And Justice Frankfurter came about during the New Deal. And Justice Frankfurter had a very firm idea that uh, the court should defer to the elected branch when at all possible, um, because the elected branches are represented by the people. They're going to make the laws. Presumably, they've read the Constitution. They've sworn to uphold it. You know, they're going to they're going to be the ones to interpret the law, and the and, and the court should really um, give due deference to, to that position and only, only overrule the elected branches when necessary. Ironically, this point of view really went out of favor in the civil rights movement because we had really restrictive, bigoted laws that had existed for centuries uh, and the court wanted to address those. There was also a groundswell in legislation and you know, but oftentimes state legislatures weren't catching up uh, to where society was. Um, and so Felix Frankfurter got in a lot of trouble uh, in the 1950s because he didn't support the Warren courts 
uh, move on uh, individual rights. He thought, well, the state legislature should handle this. This isn't something for the courts. Um, so, you know, I, I think that there's a, there's a role to play for the legislature and for the presidency and the state legislatures and state governors uh, that we really need to see more of. You know, they, we need to be able to all interpret the Constitution together. This shouldn't just be something for the high priests on the Supreme Court. I agree with that. And with that, I think we'll wrap up for part one of our interview. As you all know, we do these interviews in two parts. I'm not sure when we're going to do the second one. We may do it before or after the election, or maybe we should do it during the election if we're not slurring our words too much. But thank you very much, Taylor, for, for coming on for part one. We will, I will be sending you the audio of this and we can both listen to it, pick out the parts that we want to dive deeper into or things we want to change or things we want to correct. And part two uh, will be coming shortly after this. Thank you. All right. Well, thanks for having me. Welcome back to the show. We're back here with Taylor Murdoch. And this is now six or seven weeks since after we first talked. Nothing's really happened except Justice Barrett was confirmed to the Supreme Court. There was a little election of which uh, we can now, most of the country is saying Joe Biden is president-elect, though a few uh, dead-enders are still holding out using that term as uh, President Trump has tried every legal and extra legal thing to try to hold on to his presidency for another four years. But uh, the Electoral College just voted and there's basically no other way forward. Um, but we are not going to take the tact of every other podcast in America right now and talking about the election. We're going to go back to some of the things that we were talking about last interview, which was the Constitution and who gets to interpret the Constitution. And I found it really interesting as a conversation of, you know, how do we interpret the Constitution, who does, and just a topic of expertise in general. So I'm going to start off by asking Taylor um, a question that hits home here in Oregon. Something you mentioned in the last interview was that, you know, as Americans, we kind of have the right to interpret the Constitution how we want. I mean, courts in the end are the ones who do actually decide. But what would you say to someone like Amon Bundy or the Bundy family, who obviously have a different reading from the Constitution than most of America? Like, uh, Hey, Pete, this is Taylor. Um, so I would make one minor abrogation to what you just said, that we have a, a right to interpret the Constitution. Um, I, I, I don't know if I made this point clearly enough, but I think we all have a duty to interpret the Constitution as you know, members of a, uh, you know, of, a, of a government of the people and by the people. We're all required to open this thing up and read it and think about it and talk about it and argue it, I think. I, that's one of our core you know, unspoken commitments as as citizens. I mean, you, this is something everybody should do. So where the Bundys um, or the, the folks who participated in the Malheur uh, wildlife takeover come in, I, I think, you know, they're, they're just as entitled to their opinion as anybody else. And they're, they're, they can have their opinion, but just by virtue of having a really outlandish opinion and going and taking over a, a wildlife refuge doesn't make your opinion law. I mean, there, there, there is a process for understanding the law, and it's not simply one person's opinion, however strongly held, makes everybody else bend their knee, which is what you've seen a little bit in, in these uh, post-election lawsuits where, you know, a really outlandish point of view is taken uh, to the point of absurdity uh, and then not borne out, and then 
judges or juries rule, rule against it. And in the case of the election laws, it's been judges. So, no, I was going to say, I mean, there is a real connection there. I mean, I think, you know, the Trump team has lost 60 some odd cases. Uh, they keep bringing the same arguments out in public. Um, you know, where do, I mean, do any of these have any root in the Constitution? I mean, as far as the Bundys, I believe they're adherence to sovereign citizen ideology. Um, is that have, is there anything in the Constitution that seems to back up that claim? Well, uh, you know, like I said, if, if we all have a duty to read the Constitution, we, we should also hopefully read a little bit about the adoption of the Constitution. Um, I, have, I have Federalist papers up here if you want to open them and we can read them together. Um, but one of the things that I, I think is always so fascinating about American government, right, is that this isn't like uh, some constitutions in um, governments in South America where there are explicit affirmative rights um, that are set forth uh, that, that, you know, the, the people um, that the people are entitled to. Much of it is just these are the things that protect you from your government uh, was how uh, at least much of the early amendments to the um, Constitution were framed. So kind of seen as negative rights, right? Yeah, negative rights. I mean, I, I'm, the, the idea that, that the, the Constitution exists to protect you from, from state power uh, is a pretty important one. I think the Bundy the Bundy people can have that freedom to think that whether or not it's actually a reasonable interpretation, you know, something that's subject to legislatures and courts, and that's not been held up because you can't have a society like that where there are these, you know, people floating around declaring their rights, you know, superior to others just based on their based on their own feelings. And that's what we're seeing right now with the election cases is that they're just losing left, right, and center, but they keep making the same arguments. How many times are you allowed to make that argument before? I mean, what can, is there any kind of, um, is there any kind of penalty, any kind of thing they, they could do to, you know, the, the, the court, the cases seem to be pretty frivolous. Uh, but I'm glad there's no penalty. I've been thinking about this because, and I know you, you opened this up saying we're going to talk about the election, but it's like that we're moths to the flame. Um, I'm glad there's no penalty because you, you're seeing that right now in, um, I think it's in Florida, uh, where uh, there's a state law case where some, I think it's um, some, some citizen um, who's a lawyer has challenged the government's ability or the, the government's continued um, operation of or insistence upon uh, large gatherings and ref its refusal to rein those in during COVID. Um, and so this guy who's a lawyer who um, would fit in with some of the characters you and I know in our personal life uh, dresses up in the Grim Reaper outfit and goes out to the beach, right? And hangs out with them in the spare time, you know, to point out that these activities are, are safe. So in his professional capacity, he brings a lawsuit, um, both professionals as a citizen. Um, he loses in state courts, and now the government is going after him, trying to get him sanctioned and trying to get attorney fees. I, I think that's the wrong way to go. I, I think ultimately there needs to be an adjudication of these cases in front of a judge with the law applied. And if somebody loses, then they lose. Um, but, you know, this is a ripe ground for frivolous lawsuits. And we've seen it left and right for, uh, you know, at what, 730 or 724 at, you know, December 16th. Um, 60, to, 60 failed lawsuits, and there'll probably be another one by the time we finish. 
Which makes me think about this because, you know, I, I believe that the grounds for a lot of these lawsuits are a PR campaign that as long as they're in the courts, they're, you know, using the system and there's always a chance that it's keeping people hope. It's keeping people bringing money in. It's, it's, it's allowing them to go on to uh, friendly news networks and say, hey, we, we got another case in front of this. And we're going to win this one, and, you know, keeping the hope alive for, for, you know, people who are supporters of the president. And but makes me think about this idea of expertise. Everybody who goes on Fox News, on OAN, on CNN, on MSNBC, or whatever, you know, it's a constitutional law expert, whether it's, you know, someone who's lost 60 times in front of numerous different courts, or it's someone who, you know, is a bona fide ex-Supreme Court justice or clerk or something like that. Should there be any clearinghouse for expertise? How do we, how should we look for our information and look for expertise when we don't, when we have a question about something? Don't watch TV news. Right? Right. I mean, I, I thankfully I get all my information on Twitter, which is so much better. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's, I just, I, I think TV news is a particularly poor medium for exchanging anything of value besides, you know, the, the car crash on, uh, you know, 84 or, um, you know, what the water skiing squirrel is up to, you know, I mean, it's just, it's not conducive to a substantive discussion. Wayne Garcia's work excluded. Wayne Garcia does God's work uh, for coin news. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think that that's one of the biggest problems right there is that, you know, you basically should be for, for print media, there's a wealth of resources. Um, both from you know the Wall Street Journal on down to the New York, um, the New York Times and Washington Post, you know right there, I, I think are sources. What do you think? I mean, I I kind of agree with you. I, I go towards print media. I even go a step further and go towards certain journalists, um, both left and right, who I respect. Um, you know, one of the things that's been really challenging on teaching this year, or teaching every year now, is the line between news and opinion has been just obliterated. Yet journalists, I believe, think that we know the line, think that the public knows the line. So the Wall Street Journal opinion pages will say something pretty outlandish when there's a bunch of great Wall Street Journal news journalists who are horrified by it, but it arrives to us digitally on the same page whether it's our Twitter feed, whether it's going to the homepage, whether it's Facebook, what it, however we're getting our news, the, the hard line between news and opinion has been blurred so much, it's almost impossible to decipher. Mm -hmm. So trying to teach media literacy right now, I found it incredibly difficult because I can't even, it's hard for me to tell people how I decipher between news and opinion. It, you know, I think one of the best recommendations we can tell people is just to read less opinion. You know, the, the takes industry is so easy, you know, but actual journalism is really hard. Like, I think it's funny you bring up the Wall Street Journal because, you know, I've read the Wall Street Journal, you know, almost daily for the past five years, six years. And what's so great about reading like an actual newspaper is you can stop when you get to the opinion section and you know this is the line between the news and the opinion section. Um, but that's the problem. Very few people get in paper news anymore. So even if you're going to the Wall Street, Pro, Wall Street Journal homepage, 
you know, you, uh, someone who is paying attention could easily tell between news and opinion. But if you're just clicking on the headline that's most interesting to you, there's a blurred area. And then if you get into a deeper, one of the things I think a lot about is, you know, can you have unbiased news? Um, Wesley Lowry, a great journalist who was formerly with the Washington Post, I'm not sure who he's with now, you know, makes a pretty good argument that all journalism is biased and it's better to be honest about that bias rather than pretend that you're unbiased. And typical journalists, journalists are biased in favor of the powerful. There's a great quote that, you know, if you're neutral in, in face of injustice, you, you side with the, the oppressor. And I think sometimes our unbiased journalism tends to do that. We have a status quo and, you know, the news is told often from that status quo point of view. So I, I, I struggle with, you know, saying, oh, I just want a straight news section with un, without, you know, any kind of bias, while recognizing lack of bias is actually its own form of bias. Yeah, that's a deep wormhole you can go down. Um, you know, I, I, I think you're onto something there with like the particular specific journalists. Um, I, I also think, you know, this is something that I've been thinking about a lot. I had a good friend who was very bright, um, very thoughtful, kind of tilted to the middle of the, a Republican, but a pretty a real thoughtful Republican, um, and was a good friend of mine. And then this friend actually moved uh, to the Deep South about a year ago, and you know now this friend is surrounded by other people from the Deep South and is uh, constantly contacting me, trying to you know sell me on pyramid schemes and um, you know vaccine uh, misinformation and red pill stuff. And just, just to say, we both have lived in the Deep South, and people from the Deep South are great. So it's no, not everyone I, in the Deep South. Uh, and, and this is person is still a friend of mine, but it's just I think it's just been fascinating to watch this happen. Um, but I, I, you know, to, to my point though, I think you know this is my my pet theory about Fox News, and that you know, in a lot of like the last twenty to twenty five years, a, a certain a small or not a small, but a certain amount of people have just become accustomed to constantly getting a dopamine hit of um, excitement from their news. Like there, there's got to be some conspiracy angle to it for it to be exciting. And so we expect that of our news. When actual news of what like the government's up to, what um, major companies are up to is fascinating, but it's not particularly, you know, it's exciting. Um, so I, I think that a lot of that is just people become conditioned um, to expecting their news to provide, you know, some sort of entertainment value that it just, it just can't. And, you know, that, that's my own personal bias is a very boring person, I guess. I find it quite interesting because, you know, uh, you know, I see that and I, and every time I say something about Fox News, someone goes, what about MSNBC? And I stopped myself the other day and I said, I don't actually watch any of these. All I see is online commentary about them. So my bias from watching Fox or watching, you know, I can't say if Fox News and MSNBC are, two sides of the same coin because I don't watch either. And I don't think, I think a lot of people who make a lot of commentary on the two don't watch either as well. I mean, when you look at cable news numbers, they're, they're pretty low as far as the total amount of people actually watching. It's just, there's a few million people that actually watch. So I wonder how many people are being angered by what's actually being on Fox or, or the commentary, the editorializing of what's on Fox and what's on MSNBC. I, I don't know. I, I just think watching TV, you know, right now is, is such a like a easy thing to do. And it's still not, uh, you know, 
drawing me in. You know, we've we've both lived abroad, and you know, I was watching um, CNN International the other day, which I think is a good news source. Uh, but then it switched to regular CNN, and it was the most disgusting, like base, like dis, <laughs> you know, uneducational information that I, that you could ask for. It was just like people wanted to hear bad things about Trump, and so there were a bunch of bad things about Trump. But it, it was all like not particularly you know, intended to educate. It was just to, it was supposed to get people riled up. I've always, yeah, I've always thought, you know, if, if Fox is on the right and MSNBC, MSNBC is on the left, CNN has always had that place where they don't care about actual news. They just want to entertain. And they will put anybody on who they think will keep your interest for another two minutes. Yeah, I mean, you know, they're, they're the, the person who was the um, counsel to, um, Jeff Sessions, when he was, you know, tearing, you know, hundreds of children or thousands of children, you know, away from their parents. CNN hired this person to be their elections um, supervisor and, you know, to direct coverage. So, I mean, that's, that's like the most morally bankrupt, you know, person you could reach out to, you know, and it's, yeah, it's, so it's, it's astonishing. So what should we be doing? So going back to the idea of expertise and where we get our media and where we get our news, um, you know, not everyone is getting the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, New York Times, Oregonian, and Salem, you know, Sentinel or Courier Journal uh, delivered to their front door every day so they could go, you know, read it cover to cover. We are a much more online community. We are getting our media from social media, um, often through filters. How would you recommend someone really looking, finding the news? Well, I mean, you're, you're onto something with, with a specific journalist. I mean, it may be expensive to get, it is expensive to get a New York Times subscription, but you can follow people like Adam Lipstack, um, who's the um, Supreme Court correspondent um, who does good work. Um, Nina Totenberg from NPR is really good. Um, there's that, that baseball crank guy on Twitter. Um, Actually, he's one of my guilty pleasures. Um, he, he's a writer at Dan McLaughlin at National Review Online. Right. Um, so yeah, I mean, and there's 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 a wealth of, of people who who write about the Supreme Court. Ian Milheiser at Vox, um, who you can read without having to pay a dime, at least at the moment. Um, so, and there's of course Scotus blog. Yeah, that that that's <laughs> the driest uh, website. <laughs> Uh, I love it. It tells you what's going on. Yeah. Well, this is why you're so. This is why you're hosting the uh, the podcast. Uh, you're 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 the you're willing to to go where the the truth takes you. So, yeah. I mean, I think that's that's how I'd say if if I was to when I tell my students um, is find first of all go to boring news sites. Go to AP. You know, go to the AP. Go to NPR. Mm -hmm. Go to New York Times. Go to Reuters. Um, find out what's going on, just the facts. I mean, those are great sites for that. And if you wanna dive in deeper, find out who's going, you know, who's um, working on, you know, who's working different stories or different beats. I'll say, you know, as much as a, we talk about Twitter as a hellscape and one of the worst social medias that, that is out there. One reason I don't leave it and one reasons I actually quite like it is I could find journalists in Syria, in Afghanistan, in Madagascar, in places that I really care about that will never make the front page of the New York Times unless something goes really bad. 
you know, a place like Afghanistan obviously has been on the front page of the Times a lot, but not lately, you know, other than the peace negotiations. But when you want to find out that, you know, the violence in Afghanistan right now is incredibly high and people are dying from attacks every single day, civilians and military, and it's taken an incredible toll on the people, you got to look at the journalists on the ground who are still reporting those stories. Same with mm -hmm. Syria, same with Palestine and Israel, same with, um, you know, different places in Africa, you know, different countries in Africa where we don't get much news at all. Um, so I, I do find Twitter, if you have the time to go find out the journalists who are on those beats, uh, it, it's really useful, really useful to stay in touch with things that you care about. And, and you could ignore, you know, everything about the timbers if you want to. It's funny you mentioned that too, because when I was in law school, um, one of my, um, one of my teachers was a professor, uh, was the chief judge of the county where um, I went to, went to school. And he did a, did a class on um, Oregon civil practice and procedure, which was just like the best class ever, because it was like actually about law. And I'm just like, you know, looking at your navel and um, anyway. Um, but he, one of the things he, we did uh, during this class is we talked about voir dire, which is how you select a jury. And what questions you ask people when you're trying to get to the, you know, to find out where they're going to land uh, on your particular case, whether, you know, it's, you're trying to select 12 people for a jury, maybe it's a murder case, maybe, you know, it's a property dispute, um, you know, it's any number of things. And one of the questions that he thought was particularly good in trying to select a jury and trying to figure out how they would rule on a, on a, on a question is, where do you get your news? You know, what do you read? I mean, and were you, were you reading, you know, the, um, the Salem Farmers Journal on a daily basis? That might tell you something about somebody and how they land on it. Or were you reading the Portland Oregonian? Um, so, you know, th those are, I think they're, they're not only questions that are important about um, how, how we inform ourselves, uh, but are also about the role we end up playing in democracy. No, and I think it's an important part of how we're starting to self-segregate politically into our society. We are choosing, it's easier than ever to choose to get the news we want and make sure that we don't see any contrary opinions. Um, I would love to talk about this forever and especially talk about how this connects to all the uh, partisan media from the 1800s and how basically they make the partisanship of today look pretty mild. But we would go on for ages and ages and ages on that. So I have one more question for you that I ask all my guests. Tell me about um, a recent meal that you've had that you really enjoyed. It could be about the food or the company or whatever, but as, as someone who loves food and thinks it brings people together, what is a recent meal you've had that you really uh, was memorable? Yeah, we, made, we made hummus uh, last night uh, with my, my, well, two nights ago. I had to work late last night. Um, but uh, we made hummus and a salad um, with my, my kids. Uh, and, and then we just had a bunch of veggies. And uh, it, was, it was really nice. You know, I think what was, you know, I'm, just so everybody's clear, I, I have three kids and we have one on the way as well. Uh, so the epic, uh, the proportion of epic meals in our daily life has shrunken pretty dramatically uh, here during COVID. Um, but yeah, it was just, it was nice to like to introduce your kids to, you know, this is how you really, you know, you know, cut the garlic. This is how, um, this is how, how much olive oil you need. And you always add more than what the recipe says. So that's good. How about you? 
I was going to say, answer this very carefully. What is your hummus recipe? <laughs> um, you know, I, I have, you are, I should probably, I should answer this carefully because you as a, um, somebody who spent time in the, in the Middle East uh, will probably look down on my Portland vegan bona fides uh, from back in the uh, early 2000s. Um, yeah, I'm trying to, I always add more lemon and olive oil than, than whatever I'm, I'm making or whatever the recipe says, so. Well, no, and I ask you this because there's actually a great article and I'll send it to you after this of um, all the flavored hummuses going around and uh, uh, a journalist from, I think the National, the National and the UAE wrote just a brilliant article being like, okay, you may love it. It may be chocolate hummus and you may think it's, it's nice, but it's not hummus. Um, a fantastic, I'll, I'll send you the article. Oh, that's nauseating. What, okay, so you're, you're ruining my appetite with just the concept of chocolate hummus. Um, so tell me about a meal, a good meal you've had recently. Um, one, one of the things about COVID has been, you know, you just can't break bread together with people. You can't do meals. I used to love throwing, having people over for dinner quite a bit. Um, on the other side, on the other side, I'm at home all the time, so I cook kind of constantly. Um, and I think one of the best things I did recently is I did these braised lamb shanks uh, from a cookbook called Bottom of the Pot, which is a Persian cookbook. And these things, I had to go to like four different stores to get the ingredients. I had to get, you know, orange blossom water and rose petals and, you know, all these amazing Persian ingredients. And you just put it in the braised lamb shanks and lamb shanks are pretty cheap. You know, they're not an expensive cut of meat and you cooked them for about four hours and this, and the smells coming from this were just unreal. And then it just fell off the bone. It absolutely just fell off the bone. And I was sitting here going, this is, there's more flavor in this. There's more flavor in this than anything I've had in ages. And just why we don't cook with these spices and these flavors every day. Um, so that's that's a meal that I had that I really like. Uh, probably a, you know, a, in I think it was in September, late August or early September. Um, one of my best friends got married up in Leavenworth, and it was about eight of us. You know, we were keeping it COVID safe. Everybody shut themselves down for two weeks, and we were keeping it COVID safe. And I cooked for everyone, and I put, cooked a porchetta, and I cooked um, a veg, vegetable tagine. Uh, and you know, the, the meal was fantastic, but even more important to that was people I had worked in Portland with people I had worked in, um, in Jordan with and people I worked in Lebanon with, uh, a whole kind of group of people who I hadn't seen for a long time. And we had a house and we had all done our COVID testing and stuff like that. So we could be next to each other and it just felt like normal for a second. That, that was pretty special. Thank you very much for your time, Taylor. And um, I would love to uh, have you on again sometime whenever we have another national crisis. Well, my pleasure. I mean, it seems like we'll get those opportunities few, or fewer and far between now, but uh, it's been good to talk with you and I appreciate you having me on.